So essentially last time we started, we moved on. We had been talking about a lot of things related to Freudian psychology, psychoanalytic psychology, psychoanalysis, and so on. The unconscious, thanks so much. The unconscious, uh, we talked about dreams a lot. We talked about mistakes and what we call Freudian slips and all of that. We talked about uh, defense mechanisms. All of this comes from the world of Freudian psychology and psychoanalysis, which I love. I'm really into it. But we have to move on at some point. So last week we started to talk about a different kind of school of psychology, which is uh, cognitive and behavioral psychology. And we talked about a guy named B.F. Skinner. What B.F. stands for, I can never remember. I don't know if I ever knew. But uh, in any case, he, was, he wasn't really interested in um, so much. He didn't focus as much on, uh, on curing uh, psychological issues as he just focused on learning, the process of learning and changing people's behavior, behavior modification and education. And the idea behind it was basically this idea of this operant conditioning that essentially we can get you to do stuff, okay, just the same way that Pavlov figured out that his dogs, when they would see food and they would hear a bell, after a while just ringing the bell without showing them food, they already start salivating and getting excited because the bell is ringing. So we can associate, in other words, if we have a natural response to something and we associate it with something else, after a while, just that association can uh, provoke the response, right? Even before, like let's say, for example, going to a certain place makes you anxious, the minute you see the place, even before you go inside, you might already start also, feeling anxious. What about names? Yeah, what about that's how, like, you know, like, if you meet someone named Lily, you just don't like her. Oh, because it's... Tr- well, that then could when, be... Then, when, like, you hear the name Lily, and you're like, hmm. Okay, I hear... Yeah, that could be explained according <laughs> to... Yeah, Freud would talk about that a lot. In the case of Skinner, he's talking more about... He's talking more about the fact that we, we have certain natural uh, responses, and so we use them as incentives. So when a person links, when we link another behavior with, in other words, there's two, there's two ways to look at it. One way is more the passive way. If I link a stimulus and a response, a stimulus and a response that are natural to you, then naturally, if you smell food, you start to salivate. And now, just when you hear the ding sound that it's time for the food, you start to salivate. So I'm linking one stimulus with another one, and I can even do that in terms of shaping behavior by attaching uh, reinforcement to a behavior. I want you to do this behavior, so I reinforce it. I give a reward every time. Kids know that they're gonna get a reward. What if the reward is not every time, but it's once in a while, it's on a random schedule, it's a variable schedule reward. That's actually even more powerful, and that's how the psychology of gambling develops, that a person's like, oh, if I just put a little bit more in, if I just bet another time, if I just pull the slot machine another time, I'm gonna win this time, I'm gonna win this time. That works uh, really well at reinforcing people to do behaviors. Obviously, when it comes to gambling, that's not such a good behavior, okay? But this was really what Skinner talked about mainly, and he talked about a lot of how to raise kids and how to basically train them to be good by using these kinds of incentives and slowly shaping their behavior. And we talked about how there is an idea like that in Judaism too, where Hashem offers rewards, material rewards for things. Not because the material reward is the goal. The goal is really to get us to behave well, but in the beginning, the way that the language that we speak is the language of reward. After a while, hopefully we start to intrinsically appreciate what we're doing for the right reasons, okay? So now we're gonna move to, it's not really a total move, okay? We're, we moved out of the psychoanalytic world for a while. We're moving into something called cognitive Psychology. Now, it's related because usually cognitive and behavioral go together. So when we think of B.F. Skinner, we're thinking really he talked about behaviors 
he didn't talk so much about thoughts. He didn't talk so much about the cognitive aspect. He was focused more on the behavioral side. But we have two major figures that you should know their names. By the way, almost all of the people who were psych, you know, major psychological uh, con- con- contributors, I should say, to the science of psychology were Jewish. Um, Skinner, not. I, but, uh, but Beck, we have Aaron Beck, and we have somebody named Albert Ellis, okay? Beck and Ellis. Now, very different personalities themselves, okay? Beck is considered like the father of cognitive psychology. If you, um, nowadays, especially in the United States, the most common uh, method of treating any kind of psychological problem is called CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive therapy started with Beck. Beck is like a guy that wears a bow, I mean, was an old guy with like a bow tie and like the whole thing, like really looked like, I don't know, kind of a nerdy guy, okay? He came up with this cognitive psychology. Ellis was a very, uh, was also Jewish, a a, a different personality, a more flamboyant, more a little bit crazy. We're going to get into it, but this is... Hmm? Well, we're going to get them. So they're both sort of like under cognitive psychology, but they're different, okay? They're very similar. They're more similar than they are different, okay? Cognitive psychology is the belief. Everyone knows what cognition means? What's cognition? Being like able to use your brain. Yeah, what? Like thoughts. Yeah, thoughts, right. Your brain, exactly, thinking. So as opposed to uh, this belief that like underneath the surface of your personality is hidden all these kinds of things that are making you tick... These psychologists said, we don't see that that kind of therapy is really working. A person will go to a psychoanalytic therapist for five years talking about their mother and father and all the problems that they had in their childhood and they're not getting better. Okay? Cognitive psychology teaches that you know what really causes most of your problems? You don't have to dig into the recesses of your hidden personality to figure it out. It's maladaptive or irrational thoughts about the world that are causing most of your problems, okay? This is what cognitive, that's why it's called cognitive, because it has to do with thoughts. Now, Beck emphasized maladaptive thoughts, meaning thoughts that end up getting you into trouble, they end up straining you, stressing you. Maladaptive, it means that they're not healthy, okay? They're maladaptive thoughts. They really, um, they really both agree on pr- in principle, but they use a different uh, emphasis. I would say he talks about maladaptive thoughts. Ellis talks about irrational thoughts, okay? These are more or less the same thing. I mean, I don't really see the big difference between the two of them. Isn't okay? Beck's like a triangle? He, they do talk about Beck having the triangle, even though I don't know if he actually invented that or that was just something that came after him. But yeah, the idea of the thoughts and the feelings and the behaviors affecting each other, that, that idea. So that's like a big cognitive behavioral therapy. He was like really cognitive therapy, but they kind of took his idea and they made it cognitive behavioral therapy. So yeah, that triangle is usually associated with Beck. You're right. Now, cognitive, the difference, the main difference is more method in terms of cognitive versus ra- what he, what um, Ellis had was something called rational emotive therapy, Okay. Rational emotive therapy, it's still based on the same idea that your thoughts, your irrational thoughts, I'm sorry, uh, not behavior, therapy, right? Your, your irrational thoughts are what um, are causing you problems, okay? Uh, the difference is, is really a method that Beck was kind of like, you know what? 
A person would say, you know what? If I don't get 100 on the test, if I'm not a perfect student, then like, life is not worth living and I'm a failure. And Beck would be like, well, let's analyze that, you know? What do you think the actual percentage of people are that get uh, straight A's, you know? Are you saying 80% of people are failures? That's what you really think? You know, is it all or nothing? What would really happen if, let's say, you got an 80 on the test instead of 100? Well, what would happen? What's the worst thing that would happen, right? So he's more of, let's, let's analyze these assumptions you make about life. If this person doesn't like me, then I, then I can't live. Really? Your, your, the value of your life is dependent on whether that person likes you? What would be the worst thing that would happen if that person didn't like you? There's nobody else in the world that might like you, or maybe you'll like that, right? So Beck is kind of like, look, your way of thinking, the assumptions you're making about the world, this must be this way. If this doesn't happen the way that I need it to happen, then the, the world's coming to an end. It's a catastrophe. The world's coming to an end. Or, oh my God, I'm going to fail this test and my life is going to be over or, oh my God, this person doesn't like me or, oh, this thing that happened is so terrible that I cannot move on. Whatever it is, a person is making certain assumptions about the world. That is what all of these cognitive theories agree on. You're making certain assumptions about the world. When you make assumptions like that about the world, it affects your thinking. It makes you depressed or it makes you anxious. You're attaching so much importance to this thing. Of course, it's going to make you anxious. Or you think that this situation is so catastrophic, it's going to make you depressed or whatever. So many problems, say the cognitive psychologists, are coming from maladaptive thoughts. I must do this. That was really the emphasis of Ellis. Let's, but Beck basically talked about the idea of, of sitting down. The job of the therapist is to sit down and analyze what are your assumptions? What are you assuming about life? What is the way you're thinking about life or yourself or the world or whatever? And are those thoughts helpful or, or destructive to you? Right? Is the way you're thinking about the world helping you or not helping you? If you've learned to think about the world in certain ways that's not helpful to you, that's self-destructive, we want to get rid of that. We want to change that. But how do you get rid of it and change it? So Beck really believed, and this is one of the really big differences between the two theorists. Beck kind of believed, you know what? The job of the therapist is not to tell you what to think. But I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to say, let's analyze it. Let's think about it. What do you think? What do I think? Well, is there another possibility? Maybe you could think about things this way or that way or another way. Okay. Oh, I'm going to get to him in a second. So Beck was more collaborative. Okay. Well, collaborate with you. Let's think about it. Let's do some research. How many, you know, do, do you think, oh, such and such event happened in your life. You think there's no way to move on. Let's look. Is that really true? Why should that be true? Let's analyze it. Let's see if other people have gone through that and they've been okay. Okay. Maybe you can also be okay. Let's see if somebody was a B student also was able to become very successful. They were. Now somebody flunked could also be successful. Okay. So you, this is what Beck would do. Or, and Beck would also say, you know what? When you think a certain way, you act a certain way. And this is where that triangle comes in that you're talking about, right? When you think a certain way, you feel a certain way, and then you act a certain way. Like when you think that, oh my God, my life really stinks because such and such happened, and there's no way to turn back, and I'm not going to be able to move on, you feel differently. And when you feel like that, you're like, well, if my life is, all, is over anyway, I might as well eat six pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream tonight because just to wallow in my sorrow because there's no point in doing anything and I'm not going to go out and when my friends call, I'm going to tell them I'm not going out and I'm not going to cancel my appointment and I'm not even going to try this interview that I have. Whatever. You're going to make choices of behavior, right? That are based on this negative thinking. 
or this maladaptive thinking, or anxious thought. You're so anxious, let's say, person's so anxious about being rejected in relationships, they don't even bother trying to have any relationships because they don't want to be rejected. Okay? So a person, their thoughts lead to, lead to feelings. So that's where the behavioral part of CBT comes in because the therapist will be like, let's see what the thoughts are that you have that are affecting the way that you feel and are affecting the way that you act. And then not only are we going to challenge and show you different ways to think about things, we're also going to say act as if a different way of thinking is true. Because if you don't act, this is a problem with all psychotherapy, by the way, and and Freud is the one that's probably criticized about it the most, that it's all talking and thinking about your inner workings of your personality. But if you don't do something different, you're never going to get better. That's true for all psychotherapy, okay? All kinds of, uh, whether it's psychoanalytic or any kind of therapy, that's true. The cognitive therapy, basically, that's why it's called CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? It's not just CT, cognitive therapy, which that exists. Originally, that's how it started, just cognitive therapy. Cognitive behavioral, because you have to start behaving as if, okay, instead of behaving as if, Getting anything less than 100 on every test means you're a failure. Behave as if it means you have something to improve on and you're going to be even better and you're going to, you're, you're going to work harder and you're going to do... Uh, and it doesn't matter whether you got 100 on that test or not. You have other things going through. I don't know. Whatever it is that you're going to look at the world differently, you got to act differently too. That's cognitive behavioral therapy. That was Beck, the nerdy guy with the nice bow tie. Now, Albert Ellis was a very different personality. He lived to be almost 100 years old. And he, he was combative. Okay, you understand what combative means? Meaning, he didn't believe that you come with the patient and you're like, oh, you believe that this is true about the world, let's analyze that and maybe there's other possibilities, what do you think? He wasn't like that at all. He was combative. He believed that the therapist has to challenge the, the, the patient. Why are you saying that? Like a person will be like, this person should love me. Why are you saying that? Who said they should love you? I would actually walk right. out of the room. Yeah. Would, who, who said you should love And he would also criticize his patients. And they would say like, he'd be like, you seem like a very nice, a very smart person, but that thing that you said was not smart. Why, why are you saying that they should? Why are you saying you must do this? Who, who said you must do it? Why are you saying that? He would challenge them. And he had, he had in the city, in New York City, until like, I don't know when it was, the early 2000s. He died in 2007. Until the early 2000s, he had a public, he would have these public demonstrations of his therapy where he would basically, somebody would volunteer from the audience who wanted to get like free therapy basically. And they would go up and they would participate and he would challenge them and show his method. And he would like, whatever they said, he would like, you know, hold them accountable. Why are you assuming that? Well, why are you saying that? What do you mean? This doesn't make sense. What do you mean you should do that? Who said you should? Who said you must? Who said it has to be that way? Who said the world has to be like that? Okay? He would, it was almost like, I think of Ellis more like almost a philosopher. He would like challenge people on their beliefs. Like Socrates or something. I don't know. But more aggressive because Socrates was like friendly and, and seemed like a nice guy from the, <clears throat> Well, truthfully, both of these methods have like evidence that they work. It's just that, like you said, not every personality can handle Albert Ellis. Like, uh, he's very aggressive. So you could go on YouTube. It sounds and more annoying to me than aggressive. Yeah. Like, shut up. <laughs> I don't apparently, know. Apparently, look, it wouldn't be my thing either necessarily, but apparently, I mean, that's the biggest critique of it, that it's too combative of a therapy. A lot of people don't respond well to it. 
Okay? But apparently some people really respond well to it and they really, it really helps them. Now, the, the important thing is to say this, that both of these, okay, and, and I think it probably depends very much on uh, what kind of mal- irrational or maladaptive beliefs you have and what kind of, uh, what kind of thoughts about the world and what kind of personality you are, uh, what method is going to like dislodge those beliefs. So Ellis, if you want, I'm pretty sure... Okay, when I was in graduate school, uh, I went to graduate school in the city. He was already super old, okay? But we had an assignment for our class to go watch one of his demonstrations. But it was on Friday night, so I couldn't go. Like, the, the professor was he like, look. Famous? Yeah, he was very famous. So the professor said, look, if you can't go on a Friday night because of your religious observance, then, you know, you don't even have to tell me, just don't go. So I didn't go. But uh, I guess my class, I would have wanted to go. You can now go on YouTube and you can watch his, uh, I saw that, you know, sometimes you, if you search for, uh, for Albert Ellis, you'll see that they have like some videos of him and videos of his, uh, uh, of his, of his sessions that he would do, which apparently were super popular. I mean, tons of people would go. So truthfully, Albert Ellis was first before Beck. Whenever they teach it in psych courses, usually, in my experience, they teach Beck first and then Ellis because Beck is simpler and it's more like, it seems more like a progression, but actually Ellis started earlier. He started this whole rational emotive behavior therapy and all that. It's called REBT, right? He add, they added the B in that also. And then Beck was, was like 10, 20 years later um, and just like a kind, kinder, gentler version of Ellis because like... The, the ideas are basically the same, basically the same. But I think Beck was more like focused on what works for you. Look at it this way. It's sort of like he's Beck would fit. Yeah, yeah, he's exactly what I was thinking. Like he's much more like it fits into today's culture of like, oh, whatever works for you, you know, you do you. Oh, you want to have that, that wrong belief? Like, okay, if it works for you, that's cool. You know, like. Almost like that, even though he was like in the 70s, you know, but it was like much more like I'll work with you. What works for you? What doesn't work? Albert Ellis is like, if this is baloney, it's baloney. It doesn't matter if it works for you. Right. He was much, right. He was much more like that's why he emphasized irrational. Right. Is it intelligent or not? Is it irrational or rational? That's the question. Not whether it's maladaptive. See, that's the, the maladaptive means does it work for you? Right. Does it work for you or not? So, like, if you came to Beck and you said, I believe that there's an angel walking around on my shoulder all the time that helps me out and tells me, you know, the right thing and I follow it and it makes me feel so good and I love it and all that, he would be like, cool, your life is amazing. Albert Ellis would be like, are you insane? What's wrong with you? There's no angel on your shoulder. How about taking responsibility for your own choices and not uh, looking at an angel on your shoulder? You are in a fantasy land. You know, what kind of thing is that? Right, so the point is that Ellis is much more like a straight shooter in terms of like, are you being intelligent and rational, or are you being an idiot? But that's the difference between psych- like psychology and psychology with Torah. Like a psychologist is only gonna if you have an elephant in the room hmm. and your head and you see this elephant, a psychologist is gonna say that's fine and this hmm. elephant bothers you. Right. If you go to the psychologist and say I see an elephant, it's bothering me, right. then he's gonna try and help you. Right. That's exactly what we talked about in our very first class. That's a, that was exactly the topic of the very first class. The difference between Torah tells you what you should believe and what you should be, right? 
And, and psychology is not really about that. So if you're happy with your, if you don't feel a problem with whatever your, you know, an, an objective person might say that's really unusual and that's really like, doesn't seem to be normal, but if it works for you, a psychologist is going to say, you don't have a problem. That's exactly the example that I gave in the beginning, I think, about like a person sees an elephant in the room. That was, that was what my, one of my mentors told me when I was in, in graduate school, that you know, if you see a, 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 a 2,000 pound uh, ele- elephant or gorilla in the corner and it doesn't bother you, then, then you're, you're not sick, right? That, that's the idea of psychology. In, so that, and that is, so that's why I was saying Ellis, to me, is much more of a philosopher than a psychologist in the way that we normally think about it. Because he's believed in challenging people's assumptions about the world, what's objectively true, not what's maladaptive. What's maladaptive could be, yeah, the imaginary elephant in the room makes me feel really calm. Ellis would be like, why are you assuming there's an imaginary elephant in the room? You're obviously, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're not with it, right? So he cares about the objective reality. And Beck was more like, what works for you? So I think, yeah, that's definitely true. Ellis is much closer to like what a philosopher would be than a, uh, than a psychologist as we understand it today. Um, and I think that there are, much, there are far fewer practitioners of uh, Ellis's type of therapy. Number one, there's not many therapists who want to have that combative exchange with their client, you know, and try to, you know, attack their beliefs and all that. It's much less pleasant. It's also kind of like not as, uh, not as accepted or as you're saying, not as consistent with uh, today's kind of values and today's views to start criticizing people's personal beliefs and assumptions about the world. Like, who are you to tell me that I can't believe that, you know, uh, that the definition of success is getting 100 on every single test and the definition of, and my purpose in life is for this person to love me. Why, why, why are you telling me that I, I can't believe that? Beck will say, look, if it's working for you, then okay, you know, uh, there's, here's another alternative. Let's consider other alternatives, you know, sort of that type of thing. Whereas Ellis would be like, you're talking nonsense. That's the difference, really, between the, between the two of them. But what they share in common is that they both believe that maladaptive or wrong thinking, let's say, assumptions about the world, assumptions about you, what you must be, what you should be, what you ought to be. That was like the, the oughts and the shoulds and the musts. That was the emphasis of Ellis that he always talked about. But really, they both agree that it's assumptions about your, yourself, assumptions about the world, assumptions about reality, uh, uh, that... Uh, or how it should be, how it must be, how it has to be. This is what causes people a lot of anxiety. This is what causes a lot of people a lot of depression. And one of the reasons why, let's say, for example, in the animal kingdom, you don't really find a depressed cat. You know why? Because a person gets depressed because they think about how their life could have been. Right? Let's say, God forbid, a person has a terrible accident and they're bedridden. Right? They're thinking, oh my God, if I hadn't gotten this accident right now, I would be dancing, I would be walking, I would be doing this, I would be doing that. God forbid a person gets a disability or they lose their hearing, their sight, or, you know, chas v'chalila, anything like that. They're always, they can become profoundly depressed from that because they're always thinking about what could have been, should have been, I shouldn't be like this. I should have been like this, different than that. A cat breaks its leg. It just keeps walking, dragging the leg behind. It doesn't start thinking, philosophizing about what it should have been, could have been, might have been this way, that way. It doesn't have that. Okay? So 
being depressed or being anxious, right? A dog doesn't say, wait a second, I have this food right now, but what, what am I going to do tomorrow? You know, what, am I going to find food again? Right? The, they're not thinking about that. Right? They're not thinking, uh, uh, so they're not getting anxious about things. Oh, what is the worst thing? What if I, tomorrow I can't find food? Then what do I do then? And oh my God. So the, the, the way that we think, that we worry about the world, a lot of our worries are because we assume that if things don't go just so, just a certain way, we won't be able to handle it. Okay, what's the worst? That's why the, one of the ideas in cognitive behavioral psych is stress inoculation, which means imagine the absolute worst case scenario. Work it, work it through in your mind. What is the absolute worst thing that can happen? Imagine it, feel it, you know, <clears throat> be that <clears throat> and see. Would your life really be over? Right? Can you think about it? Wouldn't you be able to pick yourself up from it and move on? Right? So if that's the absolute worst that could happen, that's called stress inoculation. Inoculation is like the word for vaccination, right? It means like it, if you can already imagine the absolute worst and anything less than that is actually not so bad. And even the absolute worst, you probably would be able to emerge from it. Okay. Stress inoculation, they call it. Stress inoculation. Oh, whoops, inoculation. Um, and also we know that one of the things that behavioral therapists do a lot is systematic desensitization, which is a similar thing. Everyone has probably heard of that, right? Being desensitized to something. It's more of a behavioral technique, but it actually works really well with, uh, with um, phobias and stuff like that. That basically they expose you to the thing that you're afraid of and they expose it to you gradually and eventually you become desensitized to it. I need to do that. Yeah, it happens. It it happens to us in many many times. We don't realize that we do that naturally a lot. We'll be in a situation where we think there's certain things we can't tolerate, we can't handle it, we can't, do, and we slowly kind of get used to it, and eventually you get desensitized to it. It happens on a regular basis. Sometimes you might feel a pain in your body that's bothering you. After a while, you get so used to it, you don't even realize that it's bothering you. You know, things happen that we adapt to them, we get desensitized to them, for better or for worse. Sometimes it's not so good. Um, sometimes we can get desensitized to bad things uh, or to be treating, tr being treated in a way that's not good and we, instead of standing up for ourselves, it's not so good. Anyway, but stress inoculation is the idea of imagining the absolute worst case scenario, running it through in your mind and the feelings and so on and seeing what that could be. And that kind of like lowers your anxiety because you've already gone through what the absolute worst case could be. And then what will happen if the absolute worst case happens? Okay, this will be the case. Okay, that stinks, but you know, it's not the end of the world. And so you kind of run through it. This is all, it's a cognitive process of desensitization sort of um, to the worst case scenario. These are, now I think Ellis is such a character and such a funny guy and such a, you know, such an, Beck is like, looks like a nerdy guy. He has like a bow tie. He talks like a very, he's very composed and all that exactly like you would imagine and Ellis is out also exactly like you'd imagine like this very sort of aggressive not aggressive like that but meaning very outspoken very confrontational type of personality much more of like a character in that way um and uh but hugely influential I think they usually they usually think of Beck as more influential because I think his methods are more the accepted method today but Ellis really was before that and he had this really interesting idea of challenging ideas now I think that if you're talking about Psychology and Torah, obviously, this a lot of the process of teshuvah, if we use the idea of teshuvah as healing, comes from exactly the same idea. Wrong thoughts about what's important. Wrong thoughts 
about the world or wrong thoughts about ourselves, what we should expect of ourselves, what we shouldn't expect of ourselves. Of course, the difference being that we do have expectations and beliefs about what we should become. And we do have expectations and beliefs about what a person should and shouldn't do. We're not saying that there's no such thing. And we do, we test our beliefs against what is most rational. Now, obviously, we're not using rationality as from a secular perspective. We're looking at it from Hashem's perspective. What Hashem wills and what Hashem designs and what Hashem's plan is. But a lot of times that corresponds to what is rational and reasonable versus what is irrational and unreasonable. Most of what the Torah is just trying to teach you is to live your life in a wise way, to live your life according to Chokhmah. If you read the book of Mishlei, you see most of what Judaism is about is living your life according to Chokhmah, living your life according to a rational, intelligent, thought out plan because you realize that Hashem made the world According to Chokhmah, he made the world according to wisdom. So when you live according to wisdom, you succeed. When you don't live according to wisdom, you bang into the world. You bump into it because it's going according to wisdom and you're not. Okay, this is one of the principles of Judaism, especially in the book of Mishlei. If you have a time to read the book of Mishlei, and hopefully you will, if not during this year of Eshel, you will in the future, that it's full of ideas like this, that a person who's living according to wisdom is the one who succeeds because he's living in accordance with the way Hashem designed the world. That's the instruction book of the world. There's a great book that somebody might have already, uh, it's not really a psychology book, it's like a self-help book, but there's a very, very, very famous book that I'm sure you've heard recommended to you by now uh, by others, which is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, super, super great book. Very, very sadly, the author died in like a freak accident like a number of years ago. It was really sad. He was an amazing guy. He, his idea, I, I called it Mishlei for Gentiles. It's like Mishlei for non-Jews. Why? Because it's basically about if a person lives according to certain principles of wisdom and principles of ethics in their life, they will succeed. And if a person tries to bend those principles and not live according to principles, they will ultimately fail, even if in the short term it seems like they're going to succeed. And the whole book is about that. That's why it's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's about if you live... And he says in the... Huh? They have it in Hebrew too. But they, I'm pretty sure you can buy it here. It's an amazing book. And uh, I'm sure you can get it in English too. They definitely have seen it here in Hebrew. I have it in Hebrew actually. I don't, but I have it in, in, I'm sure I have it in English too. He says, he says in, the, in the beginning of the book, because he was religious. He was a Christ, religious Christian. He said, there are laws built into the world of how, and if we live in accordance with them, we succeed. He's like, I believe God made these laws. And basically when you are living according to these principles of ethics and principles of wisdom, you are living according to God's plan. And that's why you succeed. And that's exactly what Mishlei says. So when we're talking about Teshuvah, we're talking about what assumptions am I making about what's really important in life that are wrong? What assumptions am I making about what I really should spend my time on that is wrong? What if I change my view and I update my view, now I have to start behaving differently, right? And I'll feel differently also, okay? Because I've changed my view. I've altered my view. I've come into a new level of understanding. That's what Teshuvah is really about. Teshuvah is really about assessing the assumptions and the values that are at the core of what we do and how we measure ourselves and how we direct our lives and questioning whether these are really absolute. And saying, you know what, I take for granted that this is the right thing to do. Is it really the right thing to do? I've been doing it for so long, but what assumptions is it based on? 
Okay, if I'm spending a huge amount of time making money, what assumption is that based on? If I'm spending a huge amount of time impressing others, that's on the assumption that other people thinking highly of me, based on, even if it's based on superficial things, that that's a value. Why am I assuming that value? Where, where did I get that from? Is that really true? Maybe I should spend more time in developing who I really am at the core, and then that will shine through. And of course people will love me because I'll actually be good, instead of just trying to impress them on the surface, or whatever, giving examples. But the idea is, this is what Teshuvah is largely about. I think it fits perfectly into what Ellis and Becker are talking about. Assessing the way we think, analyzing the way we think, and improving the way we think about ourselves in the world, and what principles, what values, what assumptions we make about we should or shouldn't, uh, what we should or shouldn't be doing. I want to go into that more in the next time we have class, um, exploring some examples of this kind of... Uh, change of thinking, okay? Because I think we're running out of time, right? Or we ran out of time possibly already. Yeah. So uh, next time, Bezor Hashem, we're going to go into more examples from the Torah perspective of where this kind of cognitive restructuring of our way of thinking and criticizing of our assumptions and our beliefs about the world is really a part of growing as a Jew, okay? And tie it into some more of the ideas from these thinkers. But I hope that was, uh, it gives you a new perspective, a little bit different than what we've talked about up till now.